Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canabos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing Jean-Francois Lyotard. So what does Lyotard have to say? Well, Lyotard argues that all meta-narratives have failed. Now, what's a meta-narrative? It's a worldview. So traditional meta-narratives are like, for instance, the worldview espoused by the Catholic Church. Right? It's impossible to sustain belief in these meta-narratives, at least at scale. There uh, is no possibility of any one of these narratives successfully dominating the whole space. All of them are too weak and too prone to uh, being questioned, to perform a, the role that they purport to, reform, uh, to, per, to perform, which is to set everything in its place and to explain everything. Right now, it's not only impossible for Leotard to sustain belief in traditional meta narratives like the church. It's also impossible to sustain belief in progressive meta narratives in the notion that human beings will gradually become enlightened over time, that a developing civil society will gradually unlock human potential. The Holocaust for Leotard makes it impossible to take these narratives seriously. The idea that people were becoming better morally, spiritually as a consequence of the Enlightenment, that dies on the rocks of the Holocaust. It's also become impossible to sustain belief in Marxist meta-narratives in which, say, human productive power steadily increases, unlocking new and improved social formations. Lyotard was, however, a French communist in the 50s and 60s, and when he decided to start criticizing the Marxist meta-narrative, that cost him many friends. For Lyotard, Marxism could not account for the events of 1968 in France. It could not explain why the students took to the streets. They were not workers, and so they could not be responding to exploitation or alienation in the conventional senses. Instead, their protest, Leotard argues, was libidinal in character. It was driven by sensual desire. So 1968, instead of being politically or morally compelling on some kind of rational class interest basis, it was instead an aesthetically compelling event for the students in a manner that defied structural rationalization. The students' motivations cannot be put into words or understood through text. They are sensuous and aesthetic. So on, say, Althusser's view, the universities are ideological state apparatuses that exist to construct pliant bourgeois subjects. Well, how could such subjects, having been constituted in that way, turn against the regime they were constituted to support? For Leotard, there's just got to be some kind of sensuous, libidinal angle to this that a structural Marxist account of the style of Althusser's cannot grasp. So in Libidinal Economy, published in 1974, six years after 68, Leotard suggests that structural accounts and meta-narratives obscure the role of libidinal desires in politics. These libidinal desires ultimately drive political action. 
So the students then are animated by a death drive, a drive for intense experiences. This drive for intensity of experience necessarily destabilizes political institutions that aim at securing peace or order, that aim at diminishing intensity in the interests of creating stability. So there is a conflict necessarily between the death drive and order maintenance. Attempts to intellectualize these desires to frame them as, as rational or structural, for Leotard, that just launders them. Theories and meta narratives screen these desires without grasping them. They become ways of dressing up these desires when really uh, even the people who are formulating these theories, are, uh, these theories are still ultimately driven by this libidinal, intense, sensuous, aesthetic desire. Capitalism destroys all institutions in the name of accumulating more and more money. In this way, capitalism harnesses death drive. It is therefore pleasurable to be part of capitalism for Leotard. Being part of capitalism involves intensity of experience. It is because we desire this intense experience that we participate in it. And for many workers, these intense experiences are more pleasurable than the stability they enjoyed under feudalism or might enjoy under some socialist system. For Leotard, the worker who leaves the peasant village, the farming village, and goes to live in the chaotic city where they have no stability, that isn't just, say, a process of atomization, a process in which people become alienated. It is a pleasurable kind of intensity, which is acquired at the cost of all of that disorder and chaos. So this leads Leotard to the brink of endorsing capitalism, but ultimately he finds he cannot. He goes on to eventually repudiate the argument of libidinal economy, describing it as his evil book. In the postmodern condition published in 1979, so five years later and a little bit more than a decade after 68, Leotard looks for some way of differentiating good and bad intensities. Historically, we've distinguished between good and bad psychological drives through meta narratives. So, for instance, you know, Plato would draw a distinction between a drive to pursue the good and a drive to pursue whatever is pleasurable. We've discussed that many times. But for Leotard, we are no longer able to believe in meta narratives. And it is this inability to believe that defines postmodernity. So, the solution cannot simply be proposing a new meta narrative that would divide these desires up and say which ones are good and which ones are bad. Instead, insofar as there are still some people who affirm metanarratives, these people are espousing a form of reaction. And before we will be able to move forward, we will have to finish gutting the metanarratives of the past. So instead of, say, proposing a new metanarrative or returning to some metanarrative from the past, there's a need to complete the end of metanarrative so that something else can then occur. In this book, he also extends his critique of metanarratives to the scientific metanarrative. There is a political economy of science, insofar as scientists are increasingly in the direct or indirect employ of corporations and oligarchs. Universities increasingly cannot perform any functions beyond preparing students for the labor force. Ultimately, science has been subordinated to money-making, and what is regarded as scientific truth is eventually just whatever is useful in making more money, that is, whatever has instrumental value in that you know, old-school Adorno kind of sense. So 
So as computerization spreads, only forms of knowledge that can be translated into the language of the computers will be recognized as knowledge, and science will become even more impoverished and subordinated. Any subject that cannot justify itself in these terms will wither away, and that includes, for instance, the humanities, languages, and then even parts of science that can't straightforwardly be expressed in code. Leotard argues that we ought to resist this by identifying and creating things that cannot be commodified, that cannot be assimilated into this scheme, things that do not have instrumental value. But this raises a question. In a society where only those who create things that have instrumental value will receive the means of subsistence, how can we create things without instrumental value? How do you get paid to make art that doesn't have any kind of market value? How do you subsist as an artist who makes that kind of art? Well, one possibility is that the things we create may at face value have instrumental value, but will nonetheless have an aesthetic sensory effect that makes us aware of what cannot be said or what cannot be created because of the condition. So instead of creating something without any instrumental value, we create something that reminds us of what cannot be created and just so happens also to be saleable. So for instance, let's say you make a television show that is popular and can attract advertisers, subscribers, merchandising partners, all of that. At the same time, the show creates an aesthetic experience that cannot be straightforwardly digested through existing meta-narratives. It makes us aware on a sensory level of what has been excluded by the need to make money. If you manage to do all of that, the television show would be postmodern in Leotard's sense. His aim is to make us aware of capitalism excludes, not by including it, since we cannot by definition include it, but by finding clever ways of gesturing at the absences we can feel. The postmodern condition was Leotard's most influential work, but he went on to write a variety of additional works he himself considered philosophically superior, and it frustrated him the degree to which everybody talked about the postmodern condition, but he could not get people to pay as much attention to what came after. So we have, for instance, The Differend, published in 1983. So this is another you know, four years or so after the last book. In that work, Leotard argues that there are different ways of using language and that something bad has happened when one particular way of using language prevents us from using language in other ways. For instance, if in our language we are always forced to think of ourselves as individual consumers participating in markets, if we're always thinking about everything in terms of whether we are getting a good deal, if every relationship is to be treated as a business relationship, this market-based way of using language prevents us from using terms in different ways for different purposes. This for Leotard is in itself objectionable. But crucially, it would be objectionable in any direction. So, for instance, if we were to try to drive out the market language in the service of imposing some other way of using terms, that would be objectionable too. The objection here is not to market language in itself, but to the attempt to impose a single language of whatever kind. However, if you take this in a relativist direction, which is where many people want to take it or think it goes, Supporting linguistic diversity for its own sake in a manner that excludes any kind of normative evaluation, that itself would be an instance of the kind of linguistic imperialism Leotard opposes because that would be to exclude the language of ethics and of justice. 
That's a language too. While he's trying to oppose the domination of a language of morality or ethics or justice over all other kinds of language, if we respond by excluding that language, then we've done the same thing. It's this exclusion that opens the door you know, to the language of the Nazi, the language that culminates in the Holocaust. When someone develops a language that refuses even to offer others a possibility of translating their own language into its terms, that for Leotard constitutes a wrong. In cases like this, it is imperative that a new language be developed that enables meaningful dialogue. In The Inhuman, published in 1988, so again, about five years later, we seem to have a pattern here. Every half decade or so, there's a book. Leotard extends his critique of computers, arguing that in an effort to make what is human translatable into the language of computers, we are slowly convincing ourselves that the human just is what is translatable, that anything that is not translatable does not exist or does not belong to the human. In this way, the computer scientists are not only excluding forms of language that cannot be understood by the machines, they are mutilating the idea of the human being in the service of this goal. So for Leotard, they are motivated by a, a desire to escape death. If we can escape death by merging with the machines, then only what can be integrated into the machines can be eternal. And since for the computer scientists, only that which lasts forever has value, everything else is expendable in the name of preserving whatever can last. This is not to suggest, by the way, that the scientific or technological approach must or can be rejected. Again, that would be another version of the same wrong Leotard is rejecting. It is only to resist science's attempt to exclude other approaches, to deny the degree to which science and technology themselves rely on other approaches, values, languages. It's an affirmation of the value of art for art's sake. For Leotard, art exists to gesture at that which cannot be otherwise expressed. So, in Manmise, published in 1992, again about a half a decade later, Leotard suggests that this kind of linguistic imperialism is present in the family, insofar as parents impose themselves upon their children before those children have language, and therefore before those children have any means of resisting the parents' linguistic framework. Now, my big question is where in all this is the politics? So in 1968, it might have appeared that the student could be moved by death drive to challenge establishment institutions, and that this could be the basis for an emancipatory politics. But in 2023, the prospects for that sort of politics look pretty dim. In his later works, Leotard focuses mainly on aesthetic artistic interventions. But is there a politics that accompanies this now? Also, while it may be the case that we cannot all line up behind a single meta-narrative in the way that perhaps it might have been supposed people did in the Middle Ages, although I think even there, that would be a stretch. It seems very clear that there's an impulse to seek out a meta-narrative still. I mean, going after the, trying to construct a science meta-narrative is an impulse to get a meta-narrative. Trying to go back to traditional meta-narratives is an impulse to try to get a meta-narrative. It seems like people are still pretty attracted to meta-narratives. So if the 
postmodern condition is meta narratives don't convince. Why is Leotard so worried about, say, a science meta narrative dominating everything? Why is he worried about you know, an event like the Holocaust, which comes from the fascists pursuing a meta narrative? Uh, if we can't believe in meta narratives anymore, then surely these meta narratives would not be a concern. I think Leotard's response would be that these meta narratives are eventually all going to fail or eventually all going to collapse. We just aren't at the end of that process yet, that that's an ongoing developing process. Um, but that, I think that's an open question. Uh, and it's possible that human beings are not just makers of, net, of narratives, but makers of meta narratives, and that politics must deal with this rather than attempt fruitlessly to move beyond it, that there is some respect in which meta narrative is necessarily something human beings are drawn to and tend to do. So those are a couple of, of preliminary, I don't know if they're critiques, but reflections. I now want to hear about what Alex thinks. I know Alex spent in particular a lot of time on the different. He thought that was important and interesting. So let's see. What did you think, Alex? Any anything stick out to you? Um, when you started off by talking about the students and their protests, just wanted to expand more on what makes the motivation for that to be based in sensual desire and aesthetic stuff as opposed to reasons. Because, yeah, he has this idea of the, the figure or in other in the libidinal economy, you could call it maybe yeah intensities or maybe unconscious as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think for him, it's the fact that there doesn't seem to be any kind of material economic reason for the students to be involved to the degree that they were, right? You got to think back to, you know, this is the 60s. In the 60s, most people don't go to uni. You know, even today, most people don't go to uni. But back in the 60s, really, most people did not go to uni. So the people who are going to university or going to college in the 60s, these are people who are being trained to be either part of the managerial apparatus, they're being trained to be part of the bourgeoisie, they are receiving advanced education, they typically come from bourgeois families or middle class families, professional class families, they are not members of the traditional working class. And uh, even if they were to go on to get some kind of working class job after leaving uni, which would not be the case for most of them, uh, that would be after leaving uni. So it's not like they've been working in industry or working uh, on, in the service economy or in uh, as, as farmers, they haven't been doing any kind of work. They've grown up in, in cushy, relatively cushy families, most of them, and they're now at university. So they don't have any experience of exploitation. They haven't organized in a workplace. They don't have any experience of, of do, performing alienated labor, for instance. Uh, or if they do have experiences of these things, they're certainly not of the very visceral and direct kind that a traditional worker in a factory or on a farm or driving a truck or in uh, a retail establishment. It's not that kind of experience. So the question is, well, why is, is this seemingly the revolutionary subject? And part of why I draw so much attention to this is the jumping off point for Leotard is that the idea of the student as the revolutionary subject seemed very, very plausible at the beginning in 68 when you had just had a bunch of students fighting the French state and the French state almost collapsing, the Fifth Republic almost falling, right? Uh, 
And yet now today, I don't think there are very many people who are looking at students on college campuses and going, these are the people who are going to take to the streets and, and bring about the fall of the state or bring about the fall of the, the republic. If we look at, say, recent protests in France, for instance, you know, the, uh, the protests in France are not principally driven by student movements. There's a lot of other kinds of, of uh, you know, labor unions and uh, other, other forces involved. And around the world outside of France, the narrative is even less plausible. We are certainly not seeing a situation in, say, the United States or in the UK where the people who are offering the greatest resistance to the state are uh, college students on campuses. He's not saying that it would be better if they did have a reason, though. Because in a way, he celebrates the Figaro as something in the libidinal economy as opposed to the political economy. And it's important because you can think about differences without negation, whatever that means. I mean, yeah, yeah. he's not a structural Marxist who's criticizing the students for not having reasons that the structural Marxist isn't making a normative argument that you ought to have these reasons. The structural Marxist is making a descriptive argument. that This is how society works. You have material interests that come from your class position, and those things are ultimately what drives you or what motivates your behavior, right? You're conditioned by various kinds of apparatuses, which you interact with in a material way through ritual, right? Those things condition you, shape who you are, shape your interests, your beliefs, your attitudes, your values. Leotard is breaking with all of that and saying that actually what drives behavior is, is this libidinal desire, this death drive, and that therefore you need this very psychoanalytic and Lacan-infused way of thinking to properly understand the event of 1968. So it's, it's not a criticism of the students on a moral or normative level for not having this. If anything, it's a celebration of the capacity of this thing to drive this uh, revolutionary activity. But then as we move into libidinal economy, there's a realization on the part of Leotard that this doesn't necessarily conflict with capitalism. Indeed, the process of, of capitalism is itself full of this kind of thing, these disruptive flows that destroy stuff, you know, similar to what we talked about on the last episode with Deleuze and Guattari, right? So if capitalism, if anything, works with this kind of, of sensuous libidinal energy, then that energy isn't obviously anti-capitalist. It might be anti-establishment or anti-institution, but it's not anti-capitalist per se. And this becomes a concern of Leotard's and, and part of what motivates him to get so interested in how do we distinguish between good and bad forms of libidinal energy? And can we make such a distinction? And is there a way to rescue libidinal energy from the implication of libidinal economy? To, uh, to a large degree, I think we should position most of what he writes after libidinal economy as an attempt to resist or avoid the implications of libidinal economy. I'm still not sure how the libidinal economy is different from the capitalist economy. The, well, the, it's, it, yeah, it's not really different from the capitalist economy. And that is, I think, the central claim of the book that capitalism works with libidinal energy, right? And this is something that you would doesn't seem out of step with a lot of, say, ancient political theory, where you might you know, make the argument, you know, a lot of traditional lists who are interested in scholastic or Aristotelian or Platonic theory would say that you know, capitalism and encouraging consumerism encourages us to you know, just uh, 
go along with the body and the bodily desires. And that, uh, therefore, if we think that revolutionary activity comes out of giving way to desire and just allowing desire in a, in a broad spec way to drive your behavior, then what uh, is meant to end capitalism, which is revolutionary activity, is itself driven by the same energy which drives capitalism forward. Now, that could be framed in a couple of ways. You could say, well, capitalism will eventually produce the revolutionary moment that will kill it, or the revolutionary moment will produce the extension and further development of capitalism. Now, in the environment immediately after 68, it might not have been wholly clear which one of those things was going to happen. But by the mid-70s, Leotard seems to have a concern that instead of capitalism producing the revolution through the same libidinal energy, that the revolution will produce capitalism because the revolution runs on the same juice that capitalism runs on. And in that sense, all revolutions are bourgeois in the sense that all revolutions extend and further develop capitalism if those revolutions are in fact driven by death drive, uh, if they are driven by this kind of process that Leotard throws out. So it's a, a nasty, nasty conundrum that is kicked up. Is the idea that death drive is meant to be something exorbitant, so something you cannot exchange, it's just too much, Where, but the fact that it takes on this political economy form, the market form, means that it's exchanged anyway, and maybe that explains why exchanges are so unfair, because you can't put the death drive into concepts, or yeah, the people sacrifice into concepts. Or yeah, the, the yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to put into words, you know, what the death drive is or how it, what it is about the death drive that people like. What I think, the most I think that can be said is that it is this drive for an intensity of experience without any regard really for whether that is compatible with the maintenance of order or institutions or structures. Right. So if you just want to have really intense experiences and, and we see this all the time in, in, for instance, health and safety kind of uh, discourse where there's a set of people for whom danger is part of what makes life interesting. And so there are some people for whom health and safety measures are intrinsically uh, unacceptable because they diminish the intensity of life. And when you say to these people, but if you don't have these health and safety measures, then people will die, they will go, well, I would rather have the intensity, right? Someone who would say, we shouldn't have a speed limit. There shouldn't be concrete barriers on the side of the highway. Everything should be a roller coaster. And this is, this is a, it doesn't make any sense. Rationally, you couldn't really explain that kind of sentiment in a way that would seem acceptable to anybody when, when people just get excited about, I think we saw some of this with COVID where some people just, even, even if the, the science were uh, all completely conclusive and airtight that all of these measures you know, were effective, you know, suppose that all of, all of that was airtight, there would still be a sizable population who would just uh, not want to comply with those kinds of orders on the, on the basis that there ought to be this intensity, this risk, this uh, liveliness to life that is deadened if you try to uh, keep everything safe, keep everything stable, prevent everybody from dying. And this hostility to this, this sur pure survivalism is throughout Leotard's corpus, you know, even including the discussion of the, the scientists who want to live forever, 
the computer scientists who want to live forever by merging with the machines, the only way they can do that is to cut so much out of life, so much of the intensity and, and so much of, of what people think and feel and, and can express out of life so that they can say that something can live forever. To have something live forever, you have to exclude almost everything. I guess maybe an issue I would have, I don't know if it leads anywhere, but you talk about um, someone saying, I would rather have this intensity than, you know, do the things that keep order going. But then that seems to be talking again from the political, not the libidinal, because it gives them an ego, it gives them a sense of power. It's about servitude. Whereas if it's libidinal, it's supposed to be about no ego and force and dependence and force doesn't belong to anyone. So right. just mad circulation of... Yeah. Yeah. For me to sit here and explain it necessarily starts to, to some degree, paper it over because I'm not actually showing you death drive. I'm trying to explain it. Right. The person who is just experiencing death drive isn't going to explain it in these terms. They're just going to you know, give you the finger and, and do what it is that they want to do. Hmm. So they're just going to get into that fight in the middle of the, the mall or the airplane about the masks. You know, they're, they're just going to they're going to have it out. Um, if we're doing politics, then he talks about like a dismembered and unaccountable politics. So you, you try to escape destruction, but that ends up bringing more displacement or, yeah, I don't know how, I mean, you, you would take each effect maybe as a bit like in Deleuze and Guattari, just something on its own terms, not having a cause. And you would just wait for the, you know, the energy to wash over you. And the suffering and then eventually certain intensities will exhaust themselves but yeah you just start with almost scientifically you start with the effects but then you just never look for causes well the issue is if you just go all in on the intensities all the time you can end up with intensities that leotard doesn't like and the intensities leotard doesn't like are intensities that have been put in the service of meta-narrative right? Intensities that have tried to exclude other kinds of languages or discourses. The pursuit of intensity by the Nazis leads to not, you know, not just in pure linguistic terms, exclusion of, of other languages, but the killing of large numbers of people. Hmm. So there does seem to be this possibility that death drive can get married in some way to meta narrative, and can be linked in some way to meta narrative in a way that for Leotard is very dangerous because it results in a kind of linguistic imperialism, which can manifest in in mass killing and in seemingly absurd, insane forms of behavior that make absolutely no sense. In the postmodern condition, didn't he speak of science as having this imperialistic quality due to yes. the fact that it, well, this is, I don't know if it's about a meta narrative. It's more about, whereas before in narratives and tradition, you would have all the different genres. Maybe we can get into phrase genres they would all interlink with each other. Whereas to do science, you have to take just one specific genre and always analyze it using a secondary genre. So it's always one level, at least abstracted from, yeah, reality, the real. Yeah, yeah. that's a different way of explaining imperialism. Yeah. At the same time, I think it is clear that science is a meta-narrative. There's particular detail there in, in exactly how science works as a meta-narrative, how it functions, how it operates. And there's lots of detail about you know, exactly, he gets very into philosophy of language, especially in the later works in the different. But I think the 
the overarching thing that matters in terms of politics is that uh, if science itself is a meta narrative, then we have not totally come to the end of belief in all meta narratives insofar as there's still an awfully large number of people who are committed to something like a scientific worldview. Uh, surely th this, these books were written at this point a good 40 years ago. And we certainly have today a lot of people who are very excited about uploading their consciousness into the cloud and uh, arguing that an AI is just like a human mind. And a lot of this stuff is still very evidently with us. So we haven't seen in the intervening almost half a century or so a collapse in belief in the science meta narrative. Quite the contrary. If anything, that has further developed and Leotard might be positioned as someone who anticipated the development of all of that. I think in simpler terms, what I meant was the scientific meta-narrative is imperialistic because it just says that all narratives can't be proven. And then thinking about how it proves itself, how it legitimates itself. Um, I swear, doesn't he talk about how it changes from performativity to paralogy and how performativity leads in the direction of undoing itself? Right. Part of how the science meta-narrative excludes other kinds of languages is to say that these other languages can't prove themselves or can't establish themselves. But then when the science meta-narrative is asked to prove or establish itself, it makes appeal to things outside itself that it has at the same time said can't work or can't establish. So the, the, this is the way in which the science meta-narrative's imperialism is meant to work for Leotard. It crowds out space for other kinds of narratives, and then it draws on those narratives when you ask it to justify itself. So in this respect, it's fundamentally contradictory. And perhaps for that reason, one might think that eventually it would exhaust itself or give way in the same way that he thinks that these previous meta narratives would exhaust themselves or give way. But I don't think we've gotten to a point where, where nobody is, is doing meta narrative anymore, or where we postmodernity is is I think never really been a complete condition. It's been a way of describing the sense that no particular meta narrative can dominate. Uh, but I don't think it that we've really ever properly moved to a space where we're not dealing with meta narratives or people aren't positing meta narratives or trying to establish meta narratives. Some meta narratives are a little bit more pluralistic by design, they're a little bit more open to. Um, they don't exclude quite as much or quite as intensely. I think part of why Leotard gets so frustrated with science as a meta narrative is that for him it is a highly exclusive meta narrative that is constantly running down other kinds of languages, other kinds of narratives, especially once it's linked up with computerization. And his later work occurs during the period when the computers are really starting to come to the fore and be developed and be you know, brought into the people's homes and people's offices. And it's at that point that Leotard becomes really concerned about the science meta narrative. But if you know, in the 70s, it really was the case that all these meta narratives was, were collapsing, then we wouldn't have so much worrying to do about the science meta narrative in the late 80s. Is postmodernism basically deep pluralism or maybe the scientific meta narrative? taken in the sense of it doesn't look for consensus anymore. It just sees that as one stage in constantly defining and searching for the rules of new language games. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think you could describe the postmodern condition as something along the lines of deep pluralism, uh, pluralism that goes all the way down into stuff that ordinary pluralism would think we might still be able to have a consensus on. So if you think of something like uh, you know, John Rawls, for instance, in Rawls, you can have a consensus on the basic structure, the constitutional essentials. And the fact that you have a consensus on that allows a reasonable bounded pluralism, where within that bounded pluralism, there are many different comprehensive doctrines, but those comprehensive doctrines all ultimately uh, still affirm for their own reasons, the basic structure and the constitutional essentials. I think with a, a deep pluralism, you also have disagreement about those things as well. And that would be what I, I would take post-modernity to be, recognizing a pluralism which runs deeper than Rawlsian pluralism. If you take that to mean uh, that this will terminate in an end of meta narratives or an end of comprehensive doctrines that people think in principle matter for everybody, I, I don't see that happening. And you go back to, to Weber in Sciences of Vocation, Max Weber in Sciences of Vocation makes this point that even though people believe in many, many different things now, this doesn't in any way stop the truly religiously musical person from trying to have some kind of uh, you know, singular view that can be imposed or scaled up. Uh, that you still will have this figure who, regardless of the degree to which there is now disagreement, will try to in some way bring an end to that. And I think that historically, oftentimes when you do get a lot of disagreement and in the history of political thought, this is not the only time when there's been a lot of disagreement. I think as we've done a lot of different episodes here, it's become clear that there are many periods where there's quite intense disagreement. You know, in the Warring States period, when Confucius is writing in China, there's intense disagreement. You know, there's intense disagreement when you know, Plato and Socrates are getting going and uh, ancient Greece with this plurality of little city-states with you know, people all over the place having different views about different things. There, there are these periods of very intense disagreement. Oftentimes they come to an end with some kind of violent conflict that resolves them or puts some kind of cap on them. The thing that seems to be distinctive about now is that there is no violent solution to deep pluralism that anybody believes in. You know, we fought these world wars and those world wars did not resolve the value conflict in any kind of fundamental way. They may have produced brief periods of time in which that conflict was less intense, but they didn't ultimately resolve, say, the question that Weber posed 100 years ago in science as a vocation or in politics as a vocation in terms of what do you do about all of this value conflict. The, the wars are events that compel you to suspend some of this and they produce outcomes which change the distribution of power and, and change who is in position to act, but they don't in and of themselves end the value conflict. The value conflict seems to be the thing that just keeps returning. And maybe that's a, just a consequence of the degree to which the world is interconnected and the degree to which people interact and how quickly after a war the interaction is restored. If you think about a war in antiquity that is you know, big and destructive and, and forces people to line up behind different kinds of things, those wars break up and disrupt interaction 
often to a very large degree and make it difficult to come back to something like a status quo ante where you have a large amount of interaction. But coming out of, of the world wars, relatively quickly, the forms of interaction that existed prior to the wars that were cut or severed during the wars, those things are, are recreated. There's now a coordinated effort when you have something like a major great power war to restore that interconnectedness in the at the end of the war in some kind of post-war settlement. And then usually those settlements become more and more intense over time. In the case of Bretton Woods, you know, post-World War II, there's an increasing, you know, very, very quickly, an increasing in, uh, increase in the amount of interaction through the GATT trade rounds, through the creation of the WTO, through the construction of the, of the blocks, NATO and the Warsaw Pact. You know, there's a very, very quickly a lot of interaction if you think about this in terms of historical time in just a few decades, very quickly, you had not only just as much interaction as you had before the war, you have more interaction than had ever occurred. Even though the two world wars are the two largest and biggest, nastiest wars in a very, very long time in human history. Very, very quickly after those wars, you have a level of, of interaction that is, if anything, greater than it was in the 19th century or in the early 1900s. When you have that level of um, deep pluralism, in a way, I think he, he talks about modernity starting in the ancient times, whenever they have yeah, a politics of opinion without an overarching ideal, then you're in like a pagan context where there's agonism or struggle. And it's not clear whether the struggle is in order to instrumentally create a, a final end, or if it's just to keep struggling forever as its own sake. Um, yeah, there's an interesting question here about whether post-modernity is, is just a post-modernity or whether it is in some way a return to a pagan state where you have a, a kind of pre-Christian uh, plurality that you have to manage through different kinds of political technologies. If you, you need different ways of, of managing culture in a context where you are not, say, just replacing the Western Catholic Church with something else, where you're not just comparing these things. Though, I think you could still point to in, in antiquity, there were a lot of different ways of doing things which still position themselves as the way of doing things. So even in, in a pagan context, for instance, you have, say, the Persian Empire, Achaemenid Persia, is this unitary, great big way of doing things that positions itself as internally pluralistic. If you can be in the Persian Empire and you can have whatever gods you want and do whatever you want, uh, you know the same goes for the Roman Empire. This you know, big, big state which is ostensibly internally pluralist, but can be experienced by you know, a small Greek city-state on the periphery as a major threat to the the difference that that Greek city-state potentially has on offer. And you could debate the degree to which something like Persia or something like Rome is in fact a threat to that difference. But that would be, you know, the Roman way of doing things politically. There's a political language to Rome or a political language to Persia, which you do have to learn to speak, which excludes to some degree, some of the other things that you might be able to do, even insofar as it allows, say, the keeping of local customs, local gods. It does fundamentally change the legal grammar 
that you're going to have going forward once you are integrated into a big imperial state like that. So I think we, we do have some of that. You know, we do have Roman ideology, you know, Roman narratives about you know, what everybody is up to, even before Christianization. There, there is you know, ideology and I think meta-narrative in the Roman Empire. Uh, also, even within Greece, I think you, the different Greek philosophical schools were certainly interested in positioning themselves as, as having the, the right answer. And the same is true in the Warring States period in China, the different Chinese philosophical schools. Certainly, they positioned themselves as having you know, real meaningful answers to these questions. They did not just position themselves as one god among many gods. Now, maybe to some degree, this is a function of, of me tending to focus on the political narratives or the philosophical narratives in these contexts. And maybe instead, the focal point should be on the religion of the ordinary person, characterized by, say, belief in a set of, of Greek or Roman or, or uh, you know, Celtic, or uh, you can go on and on, different kinds of deities that existed in antiquity. And the attitude of the ordinary person to those deities would be... Um, very different. Uh, you know, pagan who believes in the Celtic gods doesn't necessarily have to exclude the existence of the Roman gods, uh, and and vice versa. But you know, there is this question of are these are these gods really different from each other? Are they different faces or aspects of the same thing? And and maybe one way that you try to handle these narratives is to suggest that they are different faces or aspects of the same thing. The Romans certainly were quite keen on the idea that. The gods that were worshipped in other parts of the empire were their gods going by different names or in different guises. Uh, you know, it, it may be that different gods are there for different places, or it may just be that uh, all of these gods are different names for the same gods. This is a more divergent question. Um, he talks about liberalism allowing for, I guess... Hmm. He compares information and knowledge to money and how they're basically transferred along identical channels, identical nature, and in order to basically be easily predictable. Because if you can just predict how much inputs lead to how much output, then you can start to calculate efficiency and all that. Um, but yeah, he says that there's the exact same type of network which is used to pay your debts so literally or say pay your debts to the social bond is the exact same type of network that decision makers use to invest or to you know do social policy yet liberalism allows a separation of access so even though they're the same type of channel between paying debts and being a decision maker they're they're not open to all people. You have to be a decision maker to access. I'm not sure what he meant there. Hmm. About well, the I'm not sure if I'm completely lining up and tell me if I'm not. Uh, but one of the things that I think really sticks out in his discussion of debt is this idea that uh, the idea of debt in some way includes the idea that debt can be forgiven and so you can't really have this idea of debt without also this idea of forgiveness. But then whether the idea of forgiveness applies in your case is a 
separate and distinct question. Well, that right to hold someone to a debt is to necessarily imply that you could forgive it. You could. But then whether you do becomes a political question. We certainly saw this in the euro crisis where Greece had debts. And of course, because it had debts, they could be forgiven. But there was this question about whether or not that would really happen. And sometimes there was an interesting piece written by Helen Thompson. This is a real digression now. But a piece written by Helen Thompson about whether Greece would be treated the way Greece was treated if Greece had been part of, of Western Europe, if it had been a Catholic state that had a history of being, say, in the orbit of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, would it have been treated in precisely the same way? Or is are there some states in the European Union that are in what is, in fact, a second class? States that are in Eastern Europe, states that are in Southern Europe, uh, that were not part of, of Charlemagne's empire, you know, that are to some degree uh, not as full a member as the core states of, say, France, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, some of these states that are immediately around the European core. And if that maybe has uh, something to do with why Greek debt would not be so readily forgiven. Now, that's a, a kind of zoomed out big picture way of looking at that. And there's all sorts of detailed and specific reasons that given by lots of different people, lots of different rationales. But if you take a leotard kind of attitude to this, you might say that all of that chatter about you know, whether the Bundesbank could be persuaded to agree with Merkel to do some kind of economic policy that it's unclear whether Merkel would have wanted to do with or without the Bundesbank, all these technical questions. You know, if you zoom out and go, well, all of this is really a rationalization for what is libidinal and what is the, you know, the drive, uh, maybe there is on some level a, an exclusion of the Southern European or the Eastern European from the, the wholesale language of the project. Right? They're, they're in, but they're not all the way in. And so they can have debt, but their debt can't be forgiven or can't be as readily forgiven. There's some kind of impasse there. Maybe in the different, he talks about all economic exchanges involve this idea of, you call it forgiveness, I'll say um, annulment, because yeah. in order to cede something, there has to be a counter session, you know, at one time, then and in the future time has to be, yeah. So if I give you a good and you pay me something back, then there's some kind of equivalence between what I gave you and you gave me, even though they're not the same thing. And then maybe because the whole goal of this system of, seeding and counter seeding is to gain time so in other words to i guess to create an abstract abstraction of time somehow which accounts for say not just the present but all the past and the future that the worker had and has to do in order to be competent at their job and then only a few people can really make a real profit off it so maybe you float the idea of yes you can be forgiven to the lower tier member states, but you're also trying to gain time. So you you have to kind yeah. of trick them, I'm guessing. If we take it back down to the individual level, the, the gaining time idea, I think, is, is uh, more straightforward. So if we look at individual exchange, the reason that you 
make an exchange is that you don't have the time to go and make all of the different things that you might need to survive, right? And you certainly don't have time to learn all of the skills you'd need to learn to make all of the things that you might need to survive, let alone in a modern context where there's all sorts of other additional things that we like to have that at one point in time weren't regarded as necessary, but which we now regard as necessary. It's not possible for everybody to provide for themselves all of those things or to learn all of the skills necessary, right? But through exchange, we gain time and that time then gets distributed and some people end up with more of it than others, right? Who ultimately ends up with all the time. It's a relatively small number of people relative to the people who participate in exchanging, right? Even though we participate in exchanging so that we don't have to learn all of this stuff, most of us just end up with stuff we couldn't otherwise have or stuff we couldn't otherwise make on our own. We don't end up with the time. The time ends up going to a narrow set of elites who actually don't have to work. Well, we get the real time. And then if you're an employer or a good, someone who does a lot of exchanges, then you exchange the abstract time. Right, right. Yeah, there's a, a gap there between what you get just from not having to make something yourself or having to learn a skill yourself. Uh, you know, you get, say, a television, which you couldn't build on your own. And in having the television, you do have time in a sense, because you have gained all of this, this thing that it would have taken you a very long time to learn how to make. But you don't end up with raw time in the sense that even though you've you know, bought this television, you still have to go to work next week. So there are some people who buy a television and then have to go back to work. And there are other people who can buy a television and still not go back to work. They ended up somehow with not just the television, but time itself. And there, he talks about the this as being a different between work and exchange, not as, uh, you know, say a, a, a revolutionary class and the, I don't know, the between two classes or a class and the material structure which would it's not I don't think it's meant to be a critical theory where there's just a dualistic opposition between a subject and an object or yeah there's a kind of of dressing up of exchange and this is to some degree the idea that the exchange process is kind of naturalized or fetishized in critical theory I think that's you can go back to Adorno for a wonderful discussion in negative dialectics about how the exchange process is presented as if it were two equals exchanging when, in point of fact, somebody has a lot more leverage than somebody else. And because of that leverage difference, somebody's going to end up with a lot more at the end of the exchange because there's a power differential when you enter into the exchange, which is naturalized and obscured by saying that the labor market, for instance, is a, a perfectly natural, ordinary thing that always produces uh, labor that's sold at the appropriate price. That abstraction, uh, I think, is to some degree at play here, where we have these exchanges that look as if everybody's gaining time, but the amount of time everybody's gaining is very different. And the concept of time uh, is only visible when it's not in an object. 
is it worth me unpacking what I meant by different? Because a, a different is quite an important concept. To... Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. Go ahead. So I guess whenever you're playing, you're just speaking past each other. There's a failure of communication, and one of you tends to take whatever the other person's saying and make it into something that the other person doesn't want to. So all the other person can do is say, I feel as though there's an inadequacy, something's not being expressed, but they can't find the words. So then if you talk about politics in terms of a different, you start to ask, well, are there any situations where people feel, yeah, run over, but there's not adequate language to express it? Or if, if, right. there, if there is language, then even the no leads to the yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you get to a point where the language, you can't translate it from uh, one terminology to the other. So the two people can't speak to each other, really. So, for instance, yeah, you can say that, you know, Jupiter and Zeus are the same God, right? There's a translation that can occur there between Jupiter and Zeus uh, and maybe even between Jupiter and Zeus and Maybe Odin or maybe Thor, depending on exactly how you would want to square it all up. You might be able to, to play this game further out. There's some kind of possibility of, of saying, well, we're talking about this in different ways, but really we're, we're talking about the same thing. And so it's possible, even though you're using terms that are very different from my terms, for us to have a conversation and for us to understand each other. When the different comes into play, you have a language which is excluding the other language to such a degree that it becomes impossible for people to communicate. And I think at that point, it becomes very valuable from a political theory standpoint to just find ways of creating dialogue in places where it seems like it's become impossible for it to occur. Uh, ways of, of, for instance, I think it's become very difficult and this is what I think a lot of people complain about when they talk about the degree to which, say, the labor market has been reified and naturalized. It's become very difficult to talk about the labor market as something that is anything other than inevitable. And so if you start trying to say, well, do we need to structure it in such a way that the worker is at such a disadvantage when participating in that discussion? it becomes hard to even articulate to someone who doesn't see that disadvantage in what sense the disadvantage exists, right? So if you're in an argument with a kind of a very hardline right libertarian who doesn't see the uh, interaction between the employer and the employees in any way, anything different from ordinary bartering, it is very difficult to put into words that that person will understand the nature of that objection. And then if you have a society where people who don't see that objection, for whom the labor market is naturalized and reified, if those people are in positions of power within the society, it becomes very difficult even to articulate in such a way that it, you can be understood the sense in which the labor market is a political process in which there's a power relation that works itself out. And you could apply this to lots of different things. I'm just taking that as an example. But there are lots of different areas where this translation problem issues. And the Holocaust for Leotard is a major instance of this, where the Germans, uh, the, the Nazis have adopted a language that not only excludes the possibility of uh, any kind of, in, of interaction with, uh, with Jews in, in linguistic terms, it involves uh, ultimately annihilation 
it, it's so impossible for there to be any speaking that that the other can be treated only as an enemy. And that for Leotard is, is wrong. And it's because it needs to be said that this is a wrong, that relativism has to be resisted and there has to be some kind of, of place for the language of judgment. That language can't be kicked out. He uses Kant as an idea of a good judge, in just gaming at least. And in, in The Different, he talks about how the narratives of legitimation have a different against the idea of freedom. And I think the idea is like a capital I, which is like a Kantian idea, which you arrive at through yeah, categorical imperatives and pushing contradictions to the max and reflecting on things each case by case and never determining them in one instance, being a good judge. He also uses Aristotle as well, but he says that Kant has a better, better uh, I don't know, Aristotle is, is less precise or he's very precise, but it remains a representation. Whereas with Kant, you get out of appearances and you go to some kind of super sensible reality, which is useful for some reason. Yeah, he has a lot of fun, as many theorists in his phylum do, with with bringing in all kinds of different things from the history of thought. the The main thing I would bear in mind is that because for Leotard, you're not going to have one narrative one meta narrative that can dominate or can explain things. Insofar as he compliments Kant, he's not suggesting that Kant has a meta narrative that we can use to make sense of, of everything. Uh, and that's the sense in which the progressive meta narrative, the enlightenment meta narrative, also cannot ultimately still be believed, right? Even insofar as it may look uh, you know, compelling with Kant, and Kant is a, a figure that Leotard likes to play with, if you take that in an overly literal sense to be meaning that Leotard is agreeing with Kantianism or just is a Kantian or, or is pushing a Kantian meta-narrative, uh, that could lead you places that would conflict with this theory. So there's, there's fun to be had with Aristotle and with Kant for thinking about what it means to be a, a, a judge or what you know, judgment is. But this is all within the language of judgment that Leotard is, is wanting to keep in the picture, but which he doesn't want to have mastery over other languages or other approaches to reality, right? So there's, there's scope for judgment and there's scope for talking about whether Aristotle or Kant is a better judge, but the language of judgment is just one of the languages for Leotard. It's not the master language in the way that it would have been if you were Kant. I think it's just, yeah, one of the more effective language games you can play because implicit in every prescription you make is a response, even if that response is silence. So a bit like Capital, it just kind of takes on other language games and puts them to, to work before yes. they've had a chance so, to, yeah. I, I want to, it's interesting uh, that you used the language games expression. Leotard likes to use that expression, but also it can sometimes result in him being misunderstood because language games seems to imply that you can choose to play, that you're a player, right? If you're a player, then you could choose to play or choose not to play. But since for Leotard, language is just how we go about doing stuff, there isn't really any outside of language games. There are different games, there are different languages that we can be in, right? But uh, we can't really withdraw in the way that a player might withdraw from playing a game. So the uh, language of language games is 
useful up to a point. It also, I think, encourages an irreverence that there are points in Leotard's career that he welcomed and other points in his career where he was concerned about. So the, you know, the big overarching critique of Leotard that he gets all the time is that he's a relativist who doesn't take anything seriously. And that expression language games lends itself to that. I want to emphasize at the same time that he did have this concern about the Holocaust. The Holocaust for him is this event that forces some kind of break on relativism. The question is, once you let the language of judgment back in, how does it not become, say, master language? How does normative judgment not become the language that is most important? First, Leotard demotes that language. Then he goes, well, we can't get rid of it. But then there's the question of, well, how do you keep that from dominating everything. Once you say that there's any space for it, the language of judgment has a, a very, very strong tendency to, you know, in a way that might be considered analogous with the language of science, to, to go everywhere. And the thing about the language of judgment is that it doesn't really need to rely on something external to itself in the same way. Certainly there are versions of the language of judgment where they say rely on claims about God, but there are also pragmatist accounts or, or Platonist accounts that are based on something like the good as a, as a first principle that are not necessarily linked to uh, an agentic God that determines what's right and wrong, a kind of divine commander, moral commander, but are more loosely just um, a notion of, of good that ultimately uh, all other concepts stem from or emanate from. And we've done plenty of episodes where we've talked about this. Um, yeah. Something like that has a great capacity to take over the whole thing. And this, of course, was Nietzsche's complaint that Plato's concepts, if you give any space to them, they very quickly take over the whole schema. They're very effective and powerful that way. So if you have to preserve the language of judgment to prevent the Holocaust, how then do you prevent, say, judgment from becoming the thing that tends to crowd out any other language or any other approach or interpretation? That becomes for Leotard the domain of art. The domain of art is to say what otherwise cannot be said. And as long as there's art, then there's some possibility of getting out from under whatever narratives or meta narratives there are. And I think if we reach a point where we go, well, there's always going to be some of this kind of thing. People are always going to have narratives and they're always going to want their narratives to, to do a lot of work. And there's always going to be a tendency for narratives to try to assimilate and grow and get on top of, of everything else. The uh, ultimate response Leotard has to that is artistic expression. It's not a political response. It's not a, a comprehensive wholesale response. And that is part of what makes it not fully convincing and makes a lot of his later work less influential. But from the standpoint of the artist, it gives the artist a very clear uh, remit, which is to say what otherwise can't be said in the context. Now, I think some people take that in a rather facile direction, where they think that they're just supposed to say something original or something that hasn't been said before. But that's not what that means, precisely. What it means is to gesture at what can't be said. And what can't be said might be something old. It might be something uh, that has been around for a long time, but has over the course of time been excluded. When someone gestures at something uh, old, they're not necessarily uh, doing something wrong. And, and that's indicated, I think, by 
leotards suggesting that there's something of, of paganism to postmodernism, that there is that there is scope for, for a postmodern engagement with history, a postmodern engagement with the pre-modern. It's not purely, say, uh, just about obliterating or moving past every narrative that's been told in the past. Rather, it is a way of trying to include, incorporate, give voice to narratives, including narratives from the past that have become difficult to put into words or to render comprehensible. And in that respect, it's not that different from, say, what Quentin Skinner did in the history of political thought, where he tried to unearth concepts, uh, conceptualizations, for instance, of freedom from ancient societies and find ways to express those concepts in language that could be understood by a contemporary reader of English. A lot of the history of political thought works in trying to give voice to these different concepts or different narratives that have been forgotten or are no longer uh, spoken of. And in that respect, those historians of political thought uh, are artists in a Leotardian sense. Would you say that the theme of these postmodern thinkers is to pay attention to the unconscious? Something that can't do negation, that doesn't really have, you know, it's based on chance, a lot of it, non-identity, terror, you know, something that resists rules. Well, or it has a language, like th- a language, but yeah. I, I think that there is a lot of, of Nietzschean influence here, an emphasis on agonism or on struggle among different things. But Nietzsche doesn't really put any brakes on that at all. For Nietzsche, the people who have the natural capacity to generate the, the new ideas, the new values, the philosophers of the future, uh, those people are just entitled to, to go about and, and do whatever. In fact, that's just their nature. They will go about and try to impose their values, try to impose their narratives on others. That's just the way it's going to be. And there's no break on it for Nietzsche. The agonism is totalizing. It's compatible with all kinds of horrible, terrible things. And that's just the end of it. I think a lot of postmodern thinkers are not comfortable with the degree to which Nietzsche just celebrates conflict in whatever form it takes. I think a lot of them want to put some kind of break on that. So while someone like Nietzsche, I think, would be more straightforwardly identified with just being pro-creativity and pro-new values uh, and, and new uh, ways of doing things, a lot of these postmodern thinkers had some level of interest in putting some kind of break on that process. The question is, can you put a break on that process? Or ultimately, if you want to put a break on that process, do you have to return to something like the kinds of narratives which the postmodern theorists think we have or should have moved on from? And this is a question that I think is still with us. I think both postmodernists and some more traditional thinkers would have the view that the Holocaust is a clear expression of things having gone very badly wrong in modernity. The question is, what do you do about that? Do you return to some specific meta-narrative from the past? Do you make a new meta-narrative that is a response to existing conditions? Or do you try to have some kind of plurality of narratives where none of them are excluding or boxing out the others? But even if you propose some, some kind of pluralism, doesn't that pluralism in some way have to be qualified to prevent an event like the Holocaust? And once you qualify that pluralism, don't you have something that is, in a sense, a meta narrative?
We could no. probably end it right there. Well, I was just going to say. If you've got I- something else, though. The idea is oh, that. Let's do it. You take. If you're, if you're metaphysical, you would reflect on yourself, maybe infinite on things forever, but within a rule box. Whereas if you're postmodern or scientific, you reflect on yourself within the rules, then also reflect on the rules. So, but then I was going to think, I'm not sure that science is that different from tradition. Maybe traditional spiritual practices, because perhaps it, you know, creates a kind of character that supposedly looks beyond good and bad. So it doesn't, it's not like giving you a complete account of just being or non-being, even though the scientist sees it as dogma. So, yeah. Well, I think one thing I have often come back to is this idea that uh, there being one kind of narrative that you can impose, I think is often something that modern theorists in the West project onto medieval Europe, especially Catholic Western Europe. They suppose that this happened, that there was a Catholic meta-narrative that did successfully establish itself as this totalizing thing, or very nearly successfully established itself as a totalizing thing, or came close enough to establishing itself as a totalizing thing, that it has set a model or inspired Western thinkers to want to make something which is akin to or could replace or could perform that function. And that um, I think that part of what is fun about Leotard is that Leotard does go before all of that and explores the before. And of course, if it was the case at one point in time that you didn't have something like that meta narrative or even the idea of something like that meta narrative well then somehow you got from a state where people were seemingly not doing meta narratives to a state where they were doing them and if if that can happen then even insofar as you manage to deconstruct the meta narratives that have existed since the middle ages there is some possibility of new meta narratives forming or a return to the meta narrative form, uh, unless we take there to have been some sort of, of great you know, kind of Hegelian improvement in the overall consciousness of people between now and ancient times, right? If the ancient pagans lacked the cognitive resources to resist meta narratives, but we now in post modernity do, then there would be a fundamental difference. But Leotard rejected the progressive meta-narrative that we gradually become better and better at thinking about these kinds of things. And if we reject that progressive meta-narrative, then we're not going to be necessarily better at thinking about these things than people in antiquity. We're not necessarily going to be better at resisting or avoiding meta-narrative than ancient people were. So that's, I think, a, a very pivotal aspect of this, whether there really is, in fact, some kind of difference between the consciousness of, you know, the post-Enlightenment subject and the consciousness of the pre-Catholic subject, uh, outside, of course, of the many very obvious material differences between ancient society and contemporary society and the different ways of thinking that those differences give rise to, uh, is there something fundamental that would make, say, a contemporary subject resistant to meta-narrative in a way that an ancient subject was not? We're not ancient pagans perfectly capable of, of having disputes about monotheism in much the same way that we would have disputes about meta-narrative now. Couldn't those pagans, didn't those pagans criticize um, 
monotheistic or mon, you know, singular narrative uh, religions for being too exclusive and, and not accepting enough and not permitting enough difference. You know, didn't the ancient Greeks have issues with the Persian and the Roman ways of trying to shunt them into particular roles and make them think about things in particular terms? Didn't all this happen? Didn't it all happen? So, uh, but of course, there are still a lot of people who think that there is something fundamentally different about postmodernity. And if you think there's something fundamentally different about postmodernity, then you'll think that there is some possibility of actually getting outside of meta-narrative. I think in Leotard, there's moments in the text where you could portray Leotard as, as someone who thinks that we can and will eventually get outside of meta-narrative. And there are moments when it looks like this is really a kind of maybe a return to something like a pagan state of affairs. In Weber, it's very clearly a return to a pagan state of affairs. It's many gods and demons, as he says. Now, that's the quote that we now believe in many different values that are not commensurable, uh, but maybe can be translated into one another in some way. Maybe there is some possibility of translation. But only if we approach these things as you know, part of a plurality and not as something which is supposed to take over the whole thing. But to impose that, to impose not doing meta narrative, implies something like a meta narrative kind of, of move. There's always something that you've got to exclude. That's what judgment is. Judgment is, is excluding <laughs> and saying no to things. If you're going to have judgment, then there's going to be saying no. And if there's going to be saying no, then there might be too much saying no. <laughs> oh, there's so much more we could, we could say or do about all this, but we are over now. So I think we should probably wrap up for today. But thank you guys so much for listening uh, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye.